and I noticed an opportunity to exploit our partner company's warranty policy for my financial gain. And so that's what I did for just under 10 months until the FBA came knocking on my door. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it's RJ Singh here, and we are introducing our fifth guest, season two here at Ultra Habits, and we have Craig Stanlin on the show. Now, I came across Craig on LinkedIn, where he was dubbed the reinvention architect, and I was like, well, what the hell does that mean? I needed to talk to this guy to really unpack that. I saw some of the things he was talking about on social media, and it really interested me, particularly the piece around the reinvention of our identity and how we start to drive a new narrative which results in a better life. Now, Craig's story is incredible. He had it all. He was the corporate athlete flying at the top of his industry, but things started to crumble as the business that he was in and the products started to get commoditized and he found margins were shrinking, paychecks were shrinking, and his need to live the lifestyle was increasing. So what he ultimately did was he took the path that many people do in the corporate sector, and he broke the law and ultimately ended up in a federal prison. When he was in prison, he had several breakdowns, and ultimately he had a breakthrough, as he calls it, and he started to write. And when he came out of prison, he started to redesign and rebuild his life. And upon reflection, he realized it was a very intentional process, which has now culminated in his life's work. So this is a really, really relevant story for all you executives out there that are looking at how do you continue to travel the corporate life, the striving, the pushing, the prodding, but maintaining who you are and ensuring that those values remain intact or for the individual out there that is sick and tired of where they're at and you really want to look to pivot and redefine and reinvent yourself. Anyhow, guys, I leave you in the capable hands of Craig. As always, please rate this podcast. Let us know what you think. Anyways, I'm out of here. Peace. Craig, welcome to the Ultra Habits Show. I'm so glad we're here. As you know, yesterday we were supposed to have our conversation, but I couldn't get into the building as we realized I uh, I was locked out until 6 a.m. So I'm really, really glad that we have connected. And I'm, yeah, I'm really happy that you joined us on the show today. RJ, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we've spoken a couple of times and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And I think the fact that you couldn't get into the building yesterday, we're, we're doing this when we're meant to do it. Yeah, I like the reframe on that because when I was in my car, pissed off, stressed out, yelling at a building in the dark, it didn't seem, it didn't seem that way, you know, and it's a good point, it, you know, like things get blown out of proportion and, you know, you kind of ask yourself, well, like there is tomorrow, right? And you're like, yeah, cool. Let's just have the conversation tomorrow. So I'm glad you're here, and I'll just start with this. I came across some of your stuff on 
LinkedIn. I know that you published a book and you did it with the, the team at Scribe. I know JT, I've had him on a podcast before and I went into your story and obviously it's a story of reinvention, resetting values, and it's probably on the more intense side. But I think it's relevant for anyone that is really looking at pivoting their life. And how do you do that? Right. And then how do you support that pivot with actually good habits and behaviors and attitudes? Right. So why don't you, Craig, tell us what actually happened for you? How did you kind of arrive at a place where you realized your life wasn't necessarily working the way you thought it would? Well, I was, I would say in 2012, I had what most people would say was it all. I owned four homes. I drove the nice cars. I wore the nice watches. I ate in all the nicest restaurants. I was married to just this amazing, incredible woman. And it didn't feel right. I felt like an imposter. I didn't feel worthy of any of the success. I'd always wanted to create something, to write something, to bring an invention to market. I wanted to be entrepreneurial. But I was really trapped, I felt like, by the golden handcuffs, if you will. My success really trapped me. And I, I mean, I allowed it to trap me. And so my identity is now all of a sudden so inextricably tied to all of my things and my ability to buy those things. That's who I really became. And the market that I was in, I was in technology sales. The product started becoming more commoditized. So the margins started shrinking. My paycheck started shrinking. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I was so caught up in the lifestyle that I was not working the way that I used to work. I was not working as hard as I used to work. And so now my paychecks are getting impacted and it's a direct threat against my identity. And I had started at this company at the very bottom. I bring that up because starting at the bottom, it taught me how every single thing worked. And I started putting together this puzzle, if you will. And I noticed an opportunity to exploit our partner company's warranty policy for my financial gain. And so that's what I did for just under 10 months until the FBA came knocking on my door. So in that, it's an interesting one. Did you at any point think about getting back in the trenches and working super hard or were you beyond that? Did you think about maybe going into different industries or was it more of a case of I've got a lifestyle, I'm going to maintain this lifestyle and I'm not really willing to get my hands as dirty as I was when I was coming up? That's exactly what it was. I was not willing to do the work and it was all about the lifestyle and I was really, in a sense, living what Stephen Pressfield will call a shadow career. My wife at the time had started a business, a vintage furniture business. And so I was dipping my toes into the entrepreneurial water with her business, but I was too afraid to do my own thing. I was too afraid. I had, I had one foot in one puddle and one foot in the other puddle. And I just was not committed to diving, but I was committed to maintaining that lifestyle. So this feeling of imposter syndrome and being unworthy, we hear it across the board. And I think some people have 
this sense to a greater degree and are obviously then driven by fear, which in your case led you to do things that were probably obviously less than ideal. Where and how do you think you, how did you, how did you end up with such a strong sense of unworthiness or imposter syndrome? Or do you think that's just a human condition when you reflect upon it now? This is a very interesting question because I believe it's a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. And I believe that there is something inherent in the human condition to suffer from imposter syndrome. And I say that, I'll use this anecdote to back that up. John Steinbeck, while he was writing Grapes of Wrath, he kept a diary that was his safe place to go when he was trying to navigate the difficult territory of writing a novel of that magnitude. He was already a successful author at this point. But in that diary, he wrote, this book has become a misery to me because of my inadequacy. Here is someone who is a legend in literature, who was already a successful author, and he said my inadequacy. So I think that backs the fact that we are born with that. And then on the unworthiness portion, that I believe, and I don't want to point fingers, but I think there were some instances in my childhood where just never feeling enough and never feeling enough and not feeling worthy are two sides of the same coin. You know, I would, for example, bring home a 97 on a test. Very good score. My father, who I love dearly, and he was doing the best that he could, he would look at that and wouldn't say, hey, good score. Why'd you miss those three points? You know the answer to that. That was a stupid mistake. And I, in my childhood brain, heard, you're stupid. I know he didn't say that but it turned into that and that just carried through. And now all of a sudden I'm getting success and I'm getting all the trappings of that success. And that just flowed through with everything. I don't, I don't, I don't belong to have a seat at the table. Now that you reflect on this from a place of more wisdom, how and what advice would you give to people that are grappling with feelings of inadequacy or imposter syndrome within their career or within their context? What, in your view, is the anecdote to that? What I think people can do is to, we too often focus on the negative. The negative is very easy. We can, our brains are the greatest search engines in the world, and they're going to go out there and they're going to pick all the negative evidence to support these beliefs that we're thinking. We have to learn to have a little bit of awareness and to put the brakes on that and instead do something. And this is something that I do with my clients. It's an evidence log. And it is all the positive things that you have accomplished in your life. Going back to childhood all the way up to the present day, give yourself that pat on the shoulder. Give yourself that pat on the back and reframe to see that, no, not every single time I've tried something, it's failed. I I'm had wins and I've had a lot of wins. We forget that. We don't focus on our wins enough. We focus on the negatives. And we can do that very quickly by sitting down for 20 minutes and just journaling on it, just letting the wins come out. And it's a really empowering reframe. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that when we move into a place of fear or angst or uh, 
inadequacy, we immediately view the world from a position of scarcity and I suppose our reptilian brain and it can become a very difficult way to interface with life and what you're saying is connecting with the facts and reality and kind of pulling yourself out of that by actually sitting down journaling writing really reflecting on okay well what is the reality because at any given time our perception is skewed by our emotions right and uh it, yeah that's a, that's a really interesting and powerful um uh, way i suppose of coming out of the fog when you got to prison let's talk about what happened there was it breakdown before breakthrough what was the whole situation once you got there did you lose everything in the process your wife everything what happened with that that part of the journey right so i ended up being sentenced to two years and having an order of federal restitution in the excess of eight hundred thousand dollars and to answer your question i did i lost everything there is a court order barring me from my old career my wife told me in the prison visiting room three days before Christmas that she was leaving me. Everything was gone. Every single thing was gone. But what I really very quickly learned was those things didn't mean anything. What I lost was my identity. I had no idea who I was. And that led really to the breakdown way before the breakthrough. There were just Every time I thought I hit bottom, it would fall out just a little bit further. And it just, the ground under my feet, I never trusted it. I was just waiting for it to continually just fall. It was, it was, it was this feeling of constant free fall, not knowing when it was going to end. And it really came to a serious, serious head before that breakthrough came through. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habit Show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year. And we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing. And also, if you haven't, please rate this podcast. The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. Do you think that people, when they're looking to realign or redefine themselves, they have to hit a rock bottom? This is also an extremely interesting question. Part of me wants to say yes, because it's actually a little bit easier. There is, I've been working through, through journaling, through doing my own introspection, the understanding that I blew up my life subconsciously because that's what I thought I needed to do to be able to do what it is that I wanted to do in life. And so that's the route that I took. 
And in a sense, it was a, it was a, it was a terrible route because I lost everything. I went to prison, but it would have required more courage for me to decide that I was going to do something different, that I was going to step out of the status quo. I don't think at all, I think it's a myth of reinvention that we have to hit bottom, but it's really hard to make that conscious decision that I'm going to do something different today that's going to impact my life tomorrow, the week after, and then a couple years after that. In um, recovery, we talk about the gift of desperation. It's a gift, right? And you probably identify with that. I think that I do relate to what you're saying, and I do tend to agree with you that when you polarize things, it's very obvious that when there's nowhere to go and your perceived perception is that you're at the bottom floor, you and I probably know that there's always a, a floor that's that's even lower, but everyone has their bottom floor. And when you're there, I think it's very, there's a surrender that occurs there that you may not know everything and that maybe it's time to be open and embrace new ways of seeing and being. And there's a very liberating uh, piece there. So the people that you tend to work with now or that you tend to um, uh, help do you find that they're looking for significant shifts or is it just tweaking kind of areas and slight areas of optimization? Like wh what's your, what's your experience? It's, it's all of it. Some of it is very minor tweaks. Some of it is a complete reinvention. It is unique to the individual. Some people really just want to connect with their passion. They still want to keep their job, but they just want to have something on the side. And to, I, I one person in particular, I always found this really interesting. He just wanted to do, he wanted to work with his hands. That's all he wanted to do. His job was okay, but he wanted to work with his hands. And I said, okay, what kind of work do you want to do with your hands? You know, I really want to get into woodworking. What's preventing you from doing that? Well, I was told when I was young, you can't do anything unless it's going to generate money. And I don't want to sell the furniture. I don't want to get into making a website. And I just told him, I said, okay, build whatever you want. Put it in your garage. You don't have to do anything with it. And he said, why? And we went through the limiting belief. It was much deeper than that to analyze where that came from, from family and from society. But he quite literally, and he still sends me pictures of things. I love it. He sends me pictures of the, the, the tables he's making, the stools that he's making. He made a bar that was really great. He's not selling any of it, but he's got passion, purpose, and meaning. And I think that's just so indicative of our lives and what it is sometimes that we want to connect with is that, for, that form of meaning. And then I have other people who really have reached a level of success. They've climbed that first mountain, if you will. And when they got to the top, everything that they were promised, that joy and that fulfillment and that meaning and that happiness, it wasn't there. And they've got the resources and they've got the ability to create something completely new in their life, to really go for that pet project, that passion that they have without any regard, whether or not it is going to generate income or some kind of, you know, consistent revenue stream. So when someone comes to you with the desire to reinvent or to pivot, what do you do? Where do you start? 
Like, is there a process? And is that process reflective of your own journey? It is very reflective of my own journey, but it is very unique to the individual. But what we like to do is get very clear, get very, very crystal clear on what's important to them. And you and I have talked about this some, about the values and how you want to show up. We get very clear on those things. What are the emotions that you want to experience every day? What are the actions that you take that generate those emotions? Are you scheduling time for those actions to create those emotions? We just get crystal clear clarity because it's very easy to say, I want something more in my life, but not to know what that more is because meaning and fulfillment, it doesn't have a handle on it. You can't just pick it up and move it around. It's a feeling and you've got to connect with it. You just know that it's out there. So we have to really do the work to get that clarity and then in a sense, reverse engineer from there. Right. And once the clarity is there and you start to walk on this path with people, how do you continue to reinforce the the potentially new set of values kind of daily, weekly, monthly, how does that work? That is part of that. We use the brain's reward system to our benefit. Uh, Something as simple as, I'm not a huge fan of a to-do list, but this is a good analogy. Think about a to-do list. And when you cross something off of it, you get a little little bump of energy. Well, that's a shot of dopamine. So what I tend to do with my clients is to, oftentimes they have difficulty starting this passion project because of the fear of overwhelm, the fear of judgment. So what we do is we break it down into the tiniest next possible step, have them execute that step, then have a little bit of a celebration, pat yourself on the back to give yourself that dopamine, to give yourself that reward system. Our brains want us to succeed. So we just do that over and over again. We baby step it all the way to fruition. And that helps to reinforce that feeling and that reward system. Beyond that, we want to get into the values. We want to get into how you want to show up. And there are a couple of different things I do with that. These are, these are my personal exercises, which I recommend to my clients, but to write your values down every single day. Don't just do them once and say, I know what my values are. And they're on a, a journal that you haven't opened in three years. I review mine four to five times a week. And I write them, I I literally will rewrite them down. And then I will do, they're silly games, but they work for me and they've worked for my clients. One word association, you know, write the list of values down. What's the first word that comes to mind when you think of freedom, when you think of integrity, just jot it down. Or the first three words that you think of. Another game that I like to do is one of my core values is integrity. When I embody integrity, it allows me to fill in the blank. So I create different sentences revolved around my values. And then I complete the sentence and I don't, I don't overthink it. I allow whatever comes up to come up. And every single day it's different. Sometimes there are repeats, but I really just try to open it up so they're different. And that to me creates a subconscious understanding of the values so that they are intrinsic to myself and to my, to my clients. 
Yeah, look, you just reflecting upon my own journey uh, is a, a young person kind of growing up within the the detention community and detention centers and the juvenile halls back in California and even getting in trouble as an adult, what would happen was every time I'd come out of, let's say, a facility or jail or whatever, um, I would try to reinvent myself, but I didn't have the tools. And ultimately, because I was seeking a sense of identity and couldn't find a stronger and more positive outlet or way to reinvent myself, I'd fall back into crime because the pain of being nobody was stronger. And I mean, nobody, obviously, you know, and that's how I viewed it. Like I had, you know, before going to jail, I had money, I had friends, I had power. I was always seeking power and power helped me control people and things around me. I get out of jail Nobody's calling my phone. Nobody cares where I'm at. And the pain of that was too much to bear. And because I had no way to create a new identity, I'd go back always. And I reflect upon my journey. And for me, that's kind of what kept me in that ecosystem. I ask you, have you ever thought about partnering with, uh, with uh, kind of, I don't know, organizations that help people that are getting out of prison or people that really need to shift the way they view themselves and understand the potential that they may have before they reoffend. Because I actually think that what you're doing could be very powerful for people that want to reinvent, but they've got no damn idea on how to actually do that. I think that there's some massive potential there. Thank you for that. And I, I agree 100%. I'm actually a member of a white collar support group and I do work with those individuals. We are, we range from people who have just been arrested by the FBI. They're awaiting sentencing. Um, you know, there are some folks that are actually in prison. You know, we communicate via email. We can't talk to them anymore, obviously, through we do. We meet every Monday on Zoom. So obviously the folks that are incarcerated can't join us, but we keep the conversation going via email. And then when they come out, we have some folks who have been out for 20 years that still carry that shame, that are still working on that reinvention. So as part of that group, it is I feel like it's incumbent upon me because of what I've been able to do with my life to work with as many people as I can on, on just what I know, you know, just sharing and getting that reinvention going. And what I really, you, you said something in there that I think was really important is not having the tools. One of the, and we can get into this if you want, one of the biggest things that I created, where, where I, what I created for myself was when I was in prison and I decided that I was going to reinvent, that I was going to rebuild because I realized I, I destroyed everything. I burnt it to the ground and I thought, I have to rebuild. And as I was journaling practice that I started in prison that I still do to this day, this word kept coming up. It was just, how do you, how do you rebuild anything? Put it on a foundation. You've got to create a foundation. And I said, what is my foundation? And this came to me through years, years of journaling, years of work, but it's an extremely, it's five pillars. I find them very 
simple in theory, but in practice, much more difficult. But it is, I trust myself. I am worthy. I am enough. I love myself. I accept myself. Each one of those pillars can stand on its own and is wickedly powerful. But when they are interwoven, I believe, I know for me, feel unstoppable, feel unbreakable. And I think that is something that's so important for somebody who wants to reinvent, whether they're coming out of prison or they have corporate success, to have that foundation. Because if things go sideways, that foundation's inside of you, you will always be okay. You will always be okay, regardless of the thing that you built. If it comes crumbling down again, you've got that foundation. And when you trust yourself, you know you'll be okay. When you know that you're worthy and enough, you'll know that you'll be okay. When you love yourself, you're good no matter what. When you accept yourself, same thing. It's just a very powerful tool that I use for myself and with my clients. I would imagine that it's extremely important for your clients in this process. Uh, they undergo with you to become aware and effectively know thyself, right? Because I would imagine that you're also with your clients battling against the current of them getting pulled back into what is their normal patterns, right? Because we tend to then, as soon as we hit a barrier or fear comes up, we tend to get swept into the old stream of how we do things. What are some of the inhibitors that you see that come up that potentially audience that might be listening to this, that want to reinvent that they need to be aware of some of those inhibitors that might come up in that transition to actually moving towards a new identity? Well, I don't want to just throw one word on it, but it really is. You already touched upon it. It's fear. Fear is the biggest inhibitor. That is the umbrella. Everything falls underneath that. It can be, it's fear of judgment, fear of what family is going to say, fear of failure, fear of success is something that I see quite a bit. Something that uh, when I was first starting out after rebuilding after prison that I experienced was a fear of success. So it is just fear. And what we want to do when we're in the grips of that fear is to understand that unless we're standing on the edge of a cliff on a windy day or we're about to run into a burning building, that fear is in the future. We don't have crystal balls. We are not fortune tellers. We are making up a story about an outcome that may occur if we take this action. And we believe this outcome to be true. We believe it as true as day. I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be a failure. And everybody's going to make fun of me. Complete and utter fabricated machination of the mind, but it feels so real. And what we really want to do, and you kind of said something earlier that touched upon this, we want to live in the truth. We want to live in the truth and we want to avoid the story. And that's how we start dismantling that fear. We also dismantle that fear by taking those baby steps, by taking those small steps to avoid that overwhelm. Using the book example, writing a book is a very big, lengthy project. If you start thinking about writing 250 pages, having it published, finding an agent, marketing it before you've even written one word, it's going to be very difficult to move forward. So then we just break it down into write one paragraph. It may sound silly, but write one paragraph and see that it's not so bad then another, then another. We just go from there. 
and navigate that fear that way? I would say that the effective management of fear, uh, and I'm just speaking from a business point of view, like right now I'm kind of going through a, um, a bit of a transition where I'm having to push a lot, use a lot of energy at work uh, within the business here, and things have come up for me. And I am acutely aware because of the self-work, how fear is playing out in my mind or heart. And what I'm doing is just focusing on the next action I need to take, right? In terms of the next action I need to take within the business context. And I think that, especially in the business context, and probably life, but especially in the business context, one's ability to manage fear effectively and an organization's ability to manage their collective fear and doubt is a competitive advantage. And I think that it requires a lot of introspection and work. And for me personally, the barrier to success is never really out there because I, 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 I back myself. It's all in here and in here. And what are some of the holistic tools that you employ in your own life? Um, let's talk about some of the, 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 the fluffier things, maybe, you know, you know, and even obviously you talk about some of the more practical things. What are some of the things, Craig, you employ and you talk a lot about it in social media. And I love that, that help you, uh, stay grounded in, um, and, and just manage all that stuff. Three practices that I started in prison that I do my best not to miss a day on. Meditation, stream of conscious journaling, and gratitude. Those three, I had a friend when I told them these are the practices that I was doing. He said, you're clearing the decks. That was your clearing the decks when you were in prison. And I love that analogy because that's exactly what it is. It is making space for new things to come in. Meditation is, honestly, I don't understand why everybody doesn't do it. And I think it's some of the misconceptions that come along with it that, you know, um, my mind races more than anybody else's. And I hate to break it to you. You're not special. Your mind doesn't race more than anybody else's. We all have 60 to 90,000 thoughts in a day. And it's not about turning the mind off. It's just being with what is. You are annoyed that you're sitting in meditation, just be with being annoyed. That's all it is. And it can be quite literally as little as five minutes a day. I shoot for 20 minutes a day. I do 20 minutes with a mantra, and then I follow it with five minutes of affirmations um, to start my day off. Then I go into my gratitude practice. Then I'll go into the stream of consciousness. And that just really puts me in such a mindful state for the rest of the day but those three practices, I don't see a reason for me to ever stop them because they have that much value to me. They literally have that much value to me. Now, well said. Let's pivot the conversation to your book. So Blank Canvas, tell us, uh, I suppose, and one could assume it's uh, obviously about reinvention. I started to look at uh, 
the, the manuscript you sent me, but why don't we talk a little bit about the book and, uh, and what readers can expect? It is a memoir. And what Blank Canvas is, it's the bullet train to rock bottom, to suicide ideation, to planning how I was going to kill myself. And then just a fortunate visit from my best friend of 30 plus years that showed me I had value, that showed me that I had worth. And it's the long train out of rock bottom. It's written in the first person. You come along with me on the journey. The feedback I've gotten from readers has been, it's really blown my mind. And everybody has said the same thing of, you ripped your heart open and poured yourself out in this book. I, I learned how to, you might appreciate this, I learned how to put myself in a flow state as much as possible. I would hit a flow state about four to five times a week when I was writing the book because I knew I had to get to a place where I could actually feel what it was like to stand in the courtroom when I was sentenced, to be in the prison visiting room when my wife told me that she was leaving me. I needed to feel all of that as if it was happening in real time, and then I could start writing. And I hope that comes through in the book. And it really, like I said, it's the train to the bottom and the train out. And I talk about my gratitude practice. I talk about acceptance, acceptance of reality and what a huge step that is. Forgiveness, vulnerability, shame, that unworthiness. I just cover all of that. And it's funny, the book actually ends. I'm not going to spoil it. It doesn't spoil the ending, but it's not even what I'm doing now. It's not even doing that. It just has what I would say is just this really nice opening to the next chapter. Well, I think we'll wind it down here, Craig. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate the time that you spent with us here at Ultra Habits. Where can our audience find you, Craig? Uh, craigstanland.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Craig Stanland, and Instagram, Craig underscore Stanland. And my book, Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison, is on Amazon. Well, look, I really appreciate the time. Um, thanks, for, thanks for coming on, Craig. All the best. And no doubt we'll have a multitude of conversations offline, yeah? Oh, we absolutely will. And RJ, thank you so much for having me on. I want to acknowledge you for a moment for having this platform so that we can have these conversations, that we can learn from each other and create the lives that we want to create. It's podcasts like this that inspire thought and creativity and motivation and inspiration. So I want to thank you for, for even doing this. No, I appreciate that. Thanks, Craig. That's what it's all about, man. It's about giving the listeners, the audience, the viewers, the tools uh, that they uh, can access from people that have walked the path. Right. So again, we appreciate you. We appreciate your honesty. All the best. Yeah. Same to you. Thanks so much.